trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. However you found this program, I'm grateful that you did. Thankful that you're giving it a chance. And I welcome you to our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Sorry, that's for the sake of our international listeners. (laughs) What? Don't laugh. 1% of my audience is in Brazil for some reason. I have no idea why. Also, by great sponsors like lifesavingfood.com at monticellocollege.org. So I want to start with a a little bit of a gut check today. I uh, had a chance, I had a conversation with with a neighbor who uh, stopped me on Saturday and says, Hey, I've been listening to your show for about the last three weeks. Now, you got to understand, I'm new in town. So there are people who are still kind of, you know, checking out, hey, uh, who's the, you know, who's who's the guy who <clears throat> does the does the radio show and, you know, does the podcast and whatnot. I'm grateful anytime anybody gives me a chance. And if they tell me that they've listened more than once, then I'm really grateful because I just don't take it for granted that somebody's going to keep listening. This isn't a message that's for everybody, although I do wish everybody would listen. But here was here was my gut check. This neighbor said, I've been listening for the last three weeks, uh, you know, enjoy the show. But he says, I, I had to take a break for about a week just because sometimes it's almost too much to handle. And I appreciate that kind of feedback because as hard as I try not to bring more fear or more anger into your life via the various articles I share, the guests I have, or, or the commentary that I share, sometimes I get caught up in the moment. And if I'm passionate about something, I may get hyper fixated on it and not even realize I'm doing it. So I love this kind of feedback. It reminds me, you know, step back every once in a while, take a deep breath. And and you're going to hear me say this, and I don't know how many other hosts will tell you, but if you need to unplug, if you need to stop listening for a while, do it. You know what's best for your heart, mind, and soul. And if if what I'm sharing is is causing you... Um, discomfort. Well, it's not surprising. This is these are some pretty uncomfortable truths. But if it becomes overwhelming, yeah, that's a pretty good signal. Maybe it's time to back off, take a dandelion break, take a walk, reset. I have to do this from time to time as well. In fact, I've had people ask me, "How do you talk about the stuff you talk about day in and day out without becoming weighed down to the point where it's just like this is hopeless?" And there are times when I feel like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm optimistic. I feel a sense of purpose. I, like like Lavoy Finnicum used to say, every, every time I met the guy, he would say something to the effect of, we were born for this time. And he said it with such conviction that uh, I just, I felt it to my bones. And I still believe that. But there are times when the news starts really stacking up that I find myself going, holy cow, this is hard. So a little bit of advice. I'm not a mental health professional. I'm not even a guy who takes himself that seriously, so it's it's okay if you turn off the show. I'm I'm all right. Come back and check and see if I've you know come to my senses <laughs> at a later time. But but I understand sometimes you've got to take that break and unplug, and it's surprising how quickly the world starts to look 
more normal. So there's nothing wrong with that. I want to encourage you, too, to think about this in terms of, um, yes, these are difficult times. I know, it's almost, it sounds like it's so trite. Oh, these difficult times. We're all in this together. But for some people, this is really, really tough. Economically, politically, health-wise, I mean, we have, our world has changed so much in the last two years that it's almost staggering for many people. And the tough part about that is learning how to be resilient, not just to survive, but to actually improve when things start to go sideways. Came across an article by Leah Babauta, Developing Extraordinary Resilience. And I thought, you know, this would be a great note to start the week on. So that's why I'm sharing this with you in the hopes that if you have found yourself feeling like, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe you got some bad news over the weekend. So just hypothetically, a massive hurricane hits on the Gulf Coast and shuts down 95% of the Gulf Coast oil production for the foreseeable future. Just hypothetically, if that were to happen, I mean, thank goodness at least gas prices are nice and low right now, but say they were to go higher than, than right now. That could put a crimp in people's lifestyles because the cost of everything is attached to the cost of fuel. And, well, anyway, you get the point. How can you handle these kinds of setbacks and come out better on the other side? Here's what Leo Babauta has to say. First of all, he recognizes that every one of us is beset with difficulties, obstacles, pain, tiredness, and a thousand other setbacks, small and large. And he says, what determines whether we take these setbacks in stride or let them bring us down is something that psychologists call resilience. That's the ability to come back from setbacks, to adapt, learn, and not be dragged down by your setbacks. Now, this is stuff he writes about a lot. He's, he is very into Zen. And if you're into Zen, you'll understand. This is, you know, finding that, that oneness with the universe, that peace of being in the moment. And he says, I found resilience to be an important factor in my own journey from struggling through finances and health changes over the years to navigating the scary and uncertain waters of running my own business. But he says, resilience is what has allowed him to run several marathons and an ultra marathon, among other physical challenges, despite injuries and other training setbacks. Okay, good example. It's helped him to write numerous books and courses, even in the middle of personal challenges, fears, delays due to procrastination and more. It's helped him face challenges such as debt or declining income with a positive attitude and deal with the challenges as they come. I like this next one, too. It's helped him to raise six kids, perhaps with a little help from his wife, no matter what difficulties they face or what personal baggage he's bringing as a father. And to deal with deaths in the family with an open heart, not only finding compassion for my own grief, but helping my family members in the midst of theirs. Now, Leo Bobauda says, look, none of this is to brag, but it's to show the power of simple resilience. And as I go through that list of his, by the way, I'm thinking, I bet a lot of us are nodding our heads going, okay, he can relate then. He can he could probably relate to some of the things that I'm going through because I recognize things there that I'm struggling with. Leo Bobauta says, I'm not greater than any other human, but resilience has helped me deal with these difficulties as I'm sure it has for many of you. It's such a powerful thing, resilience, but how do you develop it? 
Because make no mistake, he says it's a set of skills, a set of capabilities or capacities that can be developed over time. Now, some people might be born with greater tendencies toward resiliency, but his point is that we can all get better at it. So he says, I'm going to offer a set of practices that you can work on if you want to develop extraordinary resiliency, and I hope you find them useful. So he says, whenever you face stress or difficulty or grief, pain, struggle, setbacks, failure, disappointment, frustration, anger, uncertainty, whether it's big ones or little ones throughout the day, see it as an opportunity to practice. And these are some of the things he recommends. Number one, notice what you're not seeing. So when you're frustrated or disappointed or bored or something, it's because you're only seeing what you lack on the bad side of things. That means you're blinding yourself to the whole picture. In this moment of someone being rude to you, do you notice that they're in pain? That they have a tender, loving heart inside of them? That they are, in fact, a gift? Do you notice your own aliveness, the sunlight around you, the wonderful sounds of the day that surround you? He says in each moment there are amazing things to notice. And when we focused only on the parts we don't like, we're stuck in tunnel vision and therefore missing out on the greatness of life. What is the amazingness you're not seeing? Secondly, he talks about tapping into something bigger than yourself. Now, he says, as a father, it's amazing what I'll go through to help my kids. I'll put myself through incredible discomfort, even if if, if it means protecting them, helping them somehow, and it doesn't even feel like a sacrifice. Anyone who serves others knows this feeling. When you're doing something for others, the discomfort is just an afterthought. So when you're facing difficulty, if you can connect your task to the something bigger than yourself, serving others and not just yourself, that difficulty becomes much more insignificant. In this way, every difficulty can be seen as no big deal. Third, he recommends practice compassion for yourself and others. Because when you're in pain, you just notice that. Wish yourself peace and happiness as you would wish peace from pain for a loved one. And if someone in front of you is angry or irritated, wish them peace from anger as well. Every difficult interaction is an opportunity to practice this key skill. I like to think of it this way. It's, uh, you know, just because someone is having a bad day doesn't mean you have to have one too. You don't have to make their pain your pain. But you can definitely practice compassion by not bringing more anger or more pain to the situation. Now, he's got a couple other suggestions. I'm going to encourage you to go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check them out for yourself. Leave a comment. I appreciate your feedback and can always use it in case I take myself too seriously or something. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just got to say a couple of words about lifesavingfoods.com. Now more than ever, I am recognizing why it is such a great idea to have a good food storage program. And by a good food storage program, I mean one that consists of foods that you actually eat, that is being regularly used, and that you know how to use. I mean, look, it's great. Well, I got 30 tons of wheat sitting out there in the cellar, and, you know, boy, we won't go hungry. But if you have ever just, you know, uh, tried, if you've tried to go from a, a diet like most people eat to eating whole wheat-based products or just eating whole wheat itself, wheat berries or whatnot, 
man, oh man, you could be in for a rude awakening. As in, you know, the uh, turbo laxative scene from Dumb and Dumber. It's, uh, you know, wheat is something that you almost have to build up a little bit of tolerance to before you just dive in and, well, we're going to be eating wheat berries for the next 10 years, folks. No, you'll be miserable for a while, though, if you don't prepare. But I love the fact that uh, there are so many options available to us today, not just in terms of the types of foods that are available, but 25-year shelf life. I love that uh, you can get different size packages. You don't have to buy a whole year supply all at once. For some people, that's just that's too daunting. You can start with a, a week's supply or, or a month's supply or a grab-and-go bag. Check it out for yourself at lifesavingfood.com. I promise you, you'll find things that will be worth your while. And you get 10% off with you with the mention of HIDE, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code at checkout. So here's something that I would guess most people have not been talking about across the dinner table. Unless, of course, you're a financial planner, maybe an accountant or something like that. How societies save for an uncertain future. I'm just going to hit the high points of this article. This is from Joaquin Book for the American Institute for Economic Research. If you haven't subscribed to their regular daily emails, you are missing out on a wealth of information about a lot of different topics. This is a good one about, uh, you know, daily economy and saving for the future. I've never thought of it this way, but Joaquin Book wrote an article recently about how money is society's technology for moving value across time. Now, without defining it more narrowly, he says, which monetary economists do to their heart's content, he says, money is the technology by which we arrange the division of labor. I do my thing, you do yours, and we trade this, We can trade the surplus production with one another. Now, in this article, he explained how this fundamental insight of human civilization doesn't require money. After all, we can trade in favors or promises to one another, but codifying those promises into a detached separate item makes them easier to use, especially if we're transacting in a society of strangers numbering in the millions. So when you zoom out across time, the problems you face when saving for your immediate or far-off future is a perennial problem that every society has faced. Because you're trying to figure out how to maintain yourself, survive, maybe even thrive, when you're no longer young, fit, energetic, or smart enough to produce the value that previously sustained you. We know that we will grow old, slowly and then suddenly. We know that we will go through rough patches of illness. And so we need to put away economic value for such rainy days. And from here he talks about there are three avenues that societies can use to deliver on this. One of them is promises to deliver. The second is a standard where we trust the issuer of worthless tokens. By the way, that would be where we are today. And the third is a real-world resource standard. Now, he breaks each one of these down, says, for instance, if we operated an economy no more complicated than a hunter-gatherer tribe or a subsistence village, that structure of promises and goods for goods works. Because we don't have money, stocks, real estate, or many durable commodities. Instead, you place your faith in the tribe's future ability to provide us with what we need. We bypass the issues of money and monetary regimes by producing, distributing, and consuming correct, directly rather the goods and services we, we require. Now, some economists think, well, that's efficient. You're maximally using all of the few resources you have access to. And here's what it would look like in a real-world example. If I kill a buffalo today, I share it with you, and the implicit exchange is, well, I'm too old to kill a buffalo, 
or on those days when I fail, I share in your successful kill. But Joaquin Book points out the history of human civilization has mostly been a battle between the second and third approaches. So that first approach where we're going to make promises, look, I'll take care of you when you're young, you take care of me in my old age. Now, that you kind of see that dynamic between parents and kids, but, you know, it, it, it only works to a certain extent. For the most part, the idea of trading uh, or trusting the issuer of worthless tokens and real-world resource standards, those two things have been the battle that we've seen between centralized structures controlling mandated money and structures that use decentralized real-world resources for their monetary purposes. But in that second instance, the minute we can't fully trust one another or can credibly commit or enforce deviations from such trust, those are the only uh, two options available to solve society's value-transferring problems. So most of us have experience with central banks operating um, using paper currencies of negligible non-monetary value and private banks issuing deposits on top of those currencies. Now, I know people don't like to think about this, but it's only money because you believe it's money. The pieces of paper in your wallet or in your purse, yeah, they're cool. Yeah, and I swoon when I see a $100 bill come across my hand too, but... In the end, it's really a piece of paper representing $100 in value, and that only works as long as I believe that it's worth that, and everybody else believes that too. If for some reason that trust should disappear, if the person running the printing press misuses it, then uh, we could have some problems. There's a risk for anybody using those tokens, you know, the dollar bills and whatnot, and we're starting to see this now. People who are living on a fixed income, for instance, every dollar they have socked away in their bank account, you know, in the form of electrons or a note on somebody's ledger, they lose purchasing power from that dollar because of the insane amounts of money being printed and dumped into the economy. This is simple inflation. And so it robs them of purchasing power and that costs them down the road. If grandma has been living on a fixed income and, you know, she knows I can get by on this much per month, but every month the purchasing power of every dollar in her savings is decreasing, yeah, she's going to have a problem in pretty short order. And then, you know, it's it, it becomes more like a, a Ponzi or pyramid scheme. Now, when that third alternative that he mentions here, using tokens that have some alternative use or intrinsic value in economists speak, meaning the material is uh, is worth something to someone. This is where you talk about commodity monies like copper, silver, or gold. Adam Smith's famous analogy was with roads. They take up space that we could have used for farming, but they serve the valuable purpose in allowing us easier transport from here to there and from the past to the present. Now, this could bring us to a discussion of cryptocurrency. He does go into that. And, you know, I don't know that he comes by or, or he comes to a conclusion here that says, oh, yeah, you know, this is this is the way to go. But it is good to see that decentralization. And the, bro- the problem here is, he says, all societies have tried to overcome this issue of moving value through time and ensuring that uh, our individual livelihood will still be maintained when we're too old to produce the value that sustains us. 
So when you think of it in those terms, what am I doing today to create value that will still be valuable when I reach the age where I'm no longer able to create value? I mean, this is where we need to get a financial advisor on, right? Talk about how money should work for you. And by the way, uh, Joaquin Book in his article doesn't really provide like, uh, you know, okay, so here's the solution. This is what everybody should do. He just points out the problem and explains, you know, people have worked on this, you know, uh, politics, other people's shifting wants and desires, uncertain technologies. These all complicate the situation, but the fundamental problem of how to move value across time to where you need it in the future, something everybody's still working on. Personally, I lean towards commodities as a hedge just because you can put your hands on them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I promised myself I would try to restrict how much I spend, how much time I spend talking about COVID and lockdowns and those sort of things today. But uh, it's it's a huge part of what's going on around us. So I've tried to choose my topics carefully and just not uh, not throw out there, you know, all the all the fear mongering. Oh, the Delta variant. Oh, it's it's out of control. And ah, there's some serious questions coming, though. And, and if you're watching the news around the world, and, and I don't recommend doing this for more than a little bit at a time. In other words, immersing yourself in the news is a good way to build up that, uh, that fear and that fear addiction. I've heard people use the term fear porn, and you know, I know that's kind of a shocker. Oh, hey, you know, that's, uh, that's uncomfortable here, but I think it really does have, uh, I think that it translates as, as an analogy. People become addicted to that sensation of whatever. It's not, I don't know if it's your pleasure center or if it's just the fight or flight reflex that, that activates in your brain. But some kind of endorphins must be released that, man, we go back and we want more. Well, I know that I'm going to regret this, but here I'm going to click on, you know, whatever news source and I'm going to read this until I'm convinced. That yes, this is everything that's going on, but so often that has a tendency to just bring us down. So I want to approach these these COVID restrictions and lockdowns from hopefully a productive standpoint. Now, this is going to involve looking at some things that are that are pretty crazy going on right now. Australia, for instance. You want to see what a police state looks like in in a country that used to be pretty normal as far as allowing, you know, greater freedoms for its people? Holy cow. It's there. Australia is is right there in the throes of a police state. And, and the thing that's so uh, astonishing is a lot of people see it and they think, well, you know, they're just doing what they have to do. They're excusing it. They're finding a reason to believe that, hey, this is, this is what has to be done. So we're going to visit that in a few moments. But I came across an article here. A friend sent this to me. Um, this is from Zero Hedge. Tyler Durden, which I'm assuming is a, uh, um, since that's a movie character, this, this is just a pseudonym under which someone writes. Um, actually, no, I take that back. I'm looking closer here. Thank you, Tyler. Tyler posted it. Scott Mason via the Epic Times wrote this. The article's called, Do National COVID Mandates Fulfill the Public Good? 
Now, that's a lofty-sounding title, but what this really comes down to is conscience. And the people I know who are most outspoken against, whether it's mask mandates, whether it's vaccine mandates, whether it's lockdowns, they are speaking out as a matter of conscience. See, I I guess we're supposed to believe that, no, it's because they're Trumpers and they're possessed by the devil and they hate everybody and they're selfish and all they want is their freedoms. I don't think it's I don't think that quite describes it. But here's what Scott Mason says. He says a crisis has now darkened Western democracies just as surely as long benighted dictatorships. And he asks, wherein does it lie? And the answer is, it's in the disdain with which its proud technocrats dismiss conscience. Conscience is no quantifiable thing meaning it has no weight or measure. You can't list it among a nation's assets. Science can't even prove it exists. But he points out that conscience is no mere trifle. Conscience distinguishes humanity from the brutes of creation. It's the little spark of celestial fire that motivated the obedience of our nation's greatest heroes in their darkest hour. It's the voice of God in the soul. And over the past 18 months, our fundamental freedoms have all been assaulted by a virus. The public incursions against freedom have been protested, but the small private matter of conscience has received scant attention. And he asks, why? The answer is because it's the casualty of friendly fire by friends who never acknowledged it. So here's some explanation of this. He unpacks this a bit. Conscience was caught in the politicians' war on COVID and its variants. They confessed their faith in science to defeat it. Progress demanded it. Computer models predicted the threat to the control of the system of public health to be so terrible that to defend their technopoly, as coined by Neil Postman in his book of the same name, politicians seized extraordinary emergency powers to aid science in its certain victory. Now, their unwavering faith in science, he says, was completely irrational, if not unscientific. Science itself tells us that viruses are not living organisms. They cannot be killed. They also mutate. And all the gains from rushing the slow safety protocols of science to contain last year's virus were swiftly lost in subsequent variants. As the unflagging determination to win the war continues, he says the logic of the position grows. And that's because it was never a fight about science. It was a fight to defend the pride of the idol of technocracy and extend its dominance. And that just means more control for the technocrats. The Pfizer vaccine, now fully approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, is a marvel of speed and deployment. But its success rate of 39% against the dominant Delta variant would never have got it to trial a year ago. So the Fed's August 23rd, the FDA's August 23rd approval, rather, seems more of a participation trophy for speed and application than for actual success. What a great way to put that. I'm going to have to write that one down. But Scott Mason says, my concern is not to observe this evident absurdity. It's to note the moral consequence of fighting an extended, vain war against an immortal and invisible enemy, all with no defined exit strategy. 
That's a pretty good way to put it. And he says, for now, it's abundantly clear approving a failed vaccine while mandating passports allows for a permanent group of second class citizens even after a state of emergency has ended. And it normalizes mandatory vaccinations for everyone, even when they're not useful. I don't know if you saw this over the weekend, but Biden and Fauci were both talking about we may have to mandate that uh, people get their boosters every five months. Scott Mason writes, in September, Quebec and British Columbia will require vaccination passports for non-essential activities. Some other provinces are considering following suit while the federal government is planning to mandate vaccinations for commercial air, train and cruise ship passengers, as well as for all federal employees. But he says we'd be naive to think it'll stop there. Consciences are being crushed in the mission creep. And he says, now, why do I cite conscience as a problem? Well, when politicians waived the legal liability of the vaccine manufacturers, they also demanded the medical community set aside its ethics, first through a sustained campaign of pressure to take the shot and now through mandates. If the campaign of pressure defied the bedrock ethical principle of informed consent established in the Nuremberg Code, then the mob's call for mandates on doctors and patients to defend our idol of technocracy is in defiance of our very essence as human beings. Martin Luther once noted that to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And the great civil rights activist Martin Luther King Jr. echoed his words. In his autobiography, he writes, On some positions, cowardice asks the question, Is it safe? Expedience asks the question, Is it politic? And vanity comes along and asks the question, Is it popular? But conscience asks the question, Is it right? And the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of convenience, but where he stands in moments of challenge, moments of great crisis, and controversy. So the worth of individual conscience is the great legacy of the West. And its blessings have spread with the Nuremberg Code and and political defenses of conscience. But we're on the eve of its eclipse. Scott Mason says we're rejecting the lesson of history. Individuals ignore their conscience at the peril of their own souls. And when technocratic science is given the lead over the conscience of the nation, so much greater is the ruin. This can be avoided. The moral goodness of the freedom of association, the freedom of peaceful assembly, the freedom of thought and expression, and the freedom of conscience and religion. These are all enshrined as fundamental rights in Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. But Scott Mason says they've all been set aside under the last 18 months under the auspices of an emergency. So the question he is asking, and he's asking particularly his fellow Canadians and politicians, is what sort of nation is being preserved? when fundamental civil liberties have been cast aside and the inviolability of conscience has been despoiled as a medical necessity, a casualty of war. What sort of country will we return to? And what sort will our children inherit when the freedoms our charter calls fundamental give way to appeals of what is safe or politic or popular rather than what is right? He says it is indeed a time of crisis. All I can say is your conscience will accompany you through life and into whatever comes next. I would think being at peace with your conscience matters more than just about anything. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks once again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. There you will find links to each of the sponsors who help make this program possible. And I hope you'll take the time to do business with them, or at the very least, drop them a note. Let them know their message is reaching your ears. They include the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, NMLS ID 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender, and you can trust the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage to get you your financing figured out and squared away so when you find the home of your dreams, you're not dilly-dallying in the most competitive real estate market most people have ever seen. You have it, you can get it done, and you can pull the trigger on that home. You can call them at 435-703-4522. Their offices are at 619 South Bluff Street, Tower 1 and 2 in St. George, Utah. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You know, it's wise to learn from your own mistakes. But I also think it's pretty wise when you can learn from the mistakes of others. This is one of the reasons why I think it's brilliant to read um, classical literature. You know, you want to you wanna read about uh, the, the dangers or the, the risk and the hazards of adultery? Hey, The Scarlet Letter, that's a classic novel, and it may involve fictional characters, but boy, it tells a story that, uh, you know, a wise person could look at and say, yeah, that invites more trouble than it solves. See how that works? Now, I would like to apply it to a real-world example. John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, describes how Australia has created a police state ostensibly to stop COVID-19, but the data shows it's not working. And so the question is, what could we learn from their experience? Miltimore says on Monday, New Zealand Prime Minister, this was last Monday, Jacinda Ardern announced the government would be extending its lockdown following an outbreak of the Delta variant. Ardern at a news conference in the capital, Wellington, said, we don't yet believe that we've reached the peak of this outbreak or necessarily the edge of it. Meanwhile, in nearby Australia, residents are entering the ninth week of a lockdown that had initially been scheduled for two weeks. In many of the hardest-hit parts of the city, NBC reports military personnel roam the streets and authorities issue fines of up to $3,700 to individuals breaking lockdown orders. That policy, by the way, has resulted in violent clashes between police and lockdown protesters, But public health officials have defended the policy, which they say is expected to last at least through September. Carrie Chant, the chief health officer in New South Wales State, says what this is about is buying us time. Now, John Miltmore says the decision by New Zealand and Australia to lock down and stay in lockdown as the virus spreads fits a a familiar pattern. In 2020, numerous governments around the world went into lockdown to attempt to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. In the United States, public health officials created a 15 days to slow the spread campaign, which quickly devolved in many places into indefinite closures of all economic sectors deemed non-essential. Now, the results of the lockdowns were catastrophic. Millions of job losses, millions of businesses destroyed, surging drug overdoses, increased youth suicide and depression, and a massive decrease in cancer screenings among them. 
Globally, as many as 150 million people are expected to slip into extreme poverty. That's according to the World Bank. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a professor at Stanford University Medical School, recently called the lockdowns the biggest public health mistake we've ever made. The harm to people is catastrophic, he says. And John Miltimore writes, the harms would be bad enough, but an abundance of evidence also suggests the lockdowns were ineffective at containing the virus. Nearly three dozen academic studies have been published suggesting that lockdowns do little to slow the spread of the virus. And, and this is something I have to point out. John Miltimore has been one of the leading voices writing for the Foundation of Economic Education, which has a stable of stellar thinkers and writers and analysts that, uh, that write for it. And John is one of the best of the best. He's been writing about this ever since the, the outbreak uh, began. And he makes a lot of sense. He crunches the numbers. And here's what he says. Following the outbreak, outbreak last year, modelers warned that Sweden would incur at least 96,000 deaths by July 1st without mitigation. Now, they're talking July 1st of 2020. But to date, fewer than 15,000 Swedes have died with coronavirus. And Sweden saw a lower death spike than most of Europe. Moreover, neighbors like Norway and Finland, who had policies similar to Sweden in fact, less stringent than Sweden, had among the lowest COVID mortality rates in Europe. Lockdowns have not served to control the epidemic in the places where they have been most vigorously enforced. That's what Dr. Bhattacharya told Newsweek earlier this week, earlier this year, rather. Unfortunately, the current lockdowns in Australia and New Zealand are proving no more effective at slowing the virus than the lockdowns of 2020 despite the hardline approach of their governments. I mean, you realize in, in Australia, <clears throat> excuse me, the police are actually checking people's Fitbit trackers to determine, did you travel beyond the two kilometer, you know, uh, the, 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 the limitation that we gave you, the bubble that you must stay within in order to remain compliant? And they're telling people very openly, proudly, we will find out who you are and we will punish you. It's remarkable. But despite that hardline approach, John Miltimore writes, the three-day moving average for cases is nearly 1,000 in Australia. That's nearly double its peak in 2020. New Zealand, meanwhile, cases have quickly surged to more than 60 per day, despite the, the fact that New Zealand went into lockdown after learning of a single case of COVID. Whoops. Now, Miltimore says one reason lockdowns struggle to contain the virus is research shows that the stay-at-home orders may actually be counterproductive. University of Chicago economist Casey Mulligan noted in a National Bureau of Economic Research paper published in April, microevidence contradicts the public health ideal in which households would be places of solitary confinement and zero transmission. Instead, the evidence suggests that households show the highest transmission rates and that households are high-risk settings for the transmission of COVID-19. Huh. Now, John Miltimore says economists at the Rand Corporation and University of Southern California reached a similar conclusion regarding the ineffectiveness of shelter-in-place orders months later. The authors reported, We failed to find that shelter-in-place policies saved lives. We failed to find that countries or U.S. states that implemented SIP shelter-in-place policies earlier and in which SIP policies had longer to operate 
had lower excess deaths than countries or U.S. states that were slower to implement SIP policies. Now, sadly, Miltimore writes, Governments are compounding the tragedy of the pandemic with lockdown policies. Citizens aren't just forced to deal with a deadly pandemic. They also are forced to contend with police states that are growing increasingly aggressive and brutal. For instance, in Australia, rescue dogs recently were shot dead to prevent charity workers from picking them up. Why? Well, that would involve travel. Go figure. Easier to just kill them. The state was also using health hotels to involuntarily confine COVID-positive citizens, while multiple quarantine facilities are being constructed, including a facility in Queensland that will house up to 1,000 people. Facility, camp, you know, the line's getting blurry here. Australians who declined to submit themselves to state confinement have found themselves on the run. Police allegedly are monitoring fitness trackers to make sure individuals are not traveling beyond the boundaries established by the state. Channel 9 News in Sydney reports it's getting harder and harder to hide if you're doing the wrong thing. And in the article, you'll find links to various videos like police in Australia removing a man suspected of having COVID, suspected from his home for an indefinite stay at a COVID hotel. Holy cow. Australians who've gathered to resist these measures have been violently suppressed by police who've shown no hesitation to use rubber bullets and even pepper spray against them. And there's a link to video of a child crying after being hit in the face with pepper spray by police during a freedom rally. The images are terrifying and many people are beginning to awaken to the moral horror that's engulfing the land down under. Terror is what Australia's government has become, says John Miltimore. Let us pray that New Zealand and the rest of the world finally recognize the true face of lockdowns. He has a quote here from uh, former President Harry Truman. Once a a government is committed to the principle of silencing the voice of opposition, it only has one way to go. And that is down the path of increasingly repressive measures until it becomes a source of terror to all its citizens and creates a country where everyone lives in fear. Boy, that's that's a pretty powerful warning. And it seems like it would apply to us as much as it applies to anybody else. Check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Show some love for my sponsors. And thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This is The Brian Hyde Show.